You can be seated. Let me invite you to turn again this morning to the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. Hebrews 4. Going to begin reading in verse 14, Hebrews 4, 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men and things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered, and having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Father, we pray now that as we think about your son, that we would think thoughts worthy of him, that we would be moved as we think of him as our high priest, our go-between between you and us. Thank you that you've given us a high priest who has laid down his own life to bring us to God. We pray that we would now honor him in the way we listen and the way we apply what we hear. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you... Uh, our visitors this morning, and so just as a brief word of uh, introduction to what I'm about to explain, um, there's a, a missionary family that we support in Ethiopia, uh, the Mathenias, and uh, they've been home for a season. And in January, uh, Amber, the wife, mother of two, was killed in a car crash. Uh, and so when I speak of Anthony here in just a moment, you'll know that that's who I'm speaking of. And Anthony is a good friend of mine. I spent this past Tuesday with him. And among the numerous topics of our discussion, we talked briefly about the legal ins and outs of finalizing the adoption uh, for their son, Isaac. Um, They had begun the process before Amber died and now Uh, are making sure that it's going to be able to be finalized even with just one parent. And as Anthony is doing those things, he needs to make sure that all the paperwork is filed correctly and that everything is done possible uh, to get Amber's name on the birth certificate, uh, to make sure that the judges rule in his favor. 
Uh, there's a great deal of work to be done. But as you can imagine, um, Anthony isn't doing any of that work himself. He has four men working for him, petitioning judges, filing papers, representing him in the courtroom, and so on. Just like all of us would do, he is making use of mediators, people who know the legal language, people who know the judges, some of them, people who know how to get things done in that realm. We call them lawyers. Lawyers are simply legal go-betweens, appointed on behalf of men and things pertaining to the law. They're go-betweens, and we all make use of go-betweens in some fashion or another. Some of us have spoken uh, sometimes to a friend or a new acquaintance through a translator, or perhaps uh, you've spoken to someone through a sign language interpreter. Uh, Maybe you've used uh, in business a financial arbiter to help come to a settlement, marriage counselors, and so on. Uh, Sometimes We need someone who ranks a little bit higher than we do or who knows a little bit more than us or who has a little bit more pull than us to stand in our place and be a go-between for us with those whom we need to make peace, with those whom we need to make decisions and so on. They have all sorts of names, lawyers, arbitrators, translators, and so on. But when we speak of go-betweens in a religious sense, we call them priests. Definition of a priest is right there in chapter 5, verse 1. Every high priest is taken from among men, and he is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God. That's the definition of a priest. One who is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God. A priest is a religious go-between. That's why in the Old Testament, the clergy in the Old Testament were called priests. Their main job was to stand between God and the people offering sacrifices there again, verse 1, on behalf of the people. A priest is a go-between, an arbitrator between man and God. Now that's incidentally why the Roman Catholic Church to this day still calls their clergy priests because having rejected the idea, 1 Timothy 2.5, that there's only one mediator between God and man, having passed over much of what we're going to see today and in coming weeks about Jesus as the priest, the only priest that we need, the Roman church is still in the business of appointing religious go-betweens, human beings, to try to stand between us and God, and they therefore rightly call them priests. We are going to see, however, that Jesus Christ is the only priest that we need. Having been made perfect, verse 9, having been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin, chapter 4, verse 15, having offered himself up once for all as a sacrifice for our sins, Jesus Christ is the only spiritual go-between that we need. Indeed, he's the only one that we have. So what we have here in this passage, Hebrews 4, 14 through 5, 10, is a beautiful recap of all the ways in which Jesus our great high priest has been appointed on behalf of men and things pertaining to God. This is a celebration of all that Jesus has done to bridge the gap between God and man. It's going to be expanded upon in chapters 7, 8, and 9, and 10. But today, a summary. How does Jesus bridge the gap between God and man? I use the phrase bridge the gap intentionally. It's an important phrase because what we have here is the author, both by comparing and contrasting Jesus with these Old Testament priests, 
he's giving us a list of ways that Jesus has bridged the gap for us. And I'd like to spend the bulk of our time this morning pointing out four ways that Jesus bridges the gap between God and man. Or you might say four different types of gaps that Jesus has bridged for us. Number one, Jesus, and this is most important, Jesus bridges the moral gap between man and God. Jesus bridges the moral gap between man and God. The Bible teaches, doesn't it, that there is a moral gap between God and between his human creations. Apart from Christ and because of our sins, we are alienated from our maker. We are, Colossians 1.21, alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. We are, Ephesians 2.3, by nature children of wrath. We are, Romans 5.10, enemies of God. Isaiah, I think, puts it most succinctly, describing this moral gap that stands between us and God. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Isaiah 59.2 There's a mighty river that stands between God and man. The river of God's wrath. And so powerful is the current, so strong is the undertow, so rough are the rapids, so many are the rocks in that river between God and man that no one can cross it on his own lest he be swept away. There is a great chasm between God and man. Our iniquities have made a separation between us and our God. And, says the Bible, the only bridge that can span that gap between God and man is a bridge cemented together with blood. The only boat that can take us across that river to the other shore to peace with God is a boat coated not with pitch but with blood. The only way God's anger towards sinners will subside, the only way the moral gap can be brought together is if our sins are atoned for by blood sacrifice. So the priests of old stood between God and man offering sacrifices for sins. Chapter 5, verse 1, and again in verse 3. That was their job. Because Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no bridging the gap between man and God. So what we find here is that Jesus has come, like the priests of the Old Covenant, to offer sacrifices for sin, to bridge the gap between man and God. But unlike the priests of old, Jesus did not need to offer, verse 3, sacrifices as for the people, so also for himself. He didn't need to offer sacrifices for himself. He didn't need to approach God like we do across a bloody bridge or in a bloody boat. Jesus could walk across the water of God's wrath with no fear of being swept away because he had no personal sin to bear. Verse 15, chapter 4, he was tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. There is no gap between Jesus and his heavenly Father. He was, verse 9, perfect. And thus, what we are finding here in this very first point is that Jesus is better than and even renders obsolete the Old Testament priests and their modern Roman counterparts. He is the great high priest. For every other priest, verses 2 and 3, is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. But Jesus 
being without sin, so far from having to offer sacrifices for himself, was able to offer himself as the sacrifice. It's a wonderful contrast between the priests and the priest, capital P. Jesus was able not only to pave the way to God, but to be the way to God. Jesus was able not simply to be the go-between in eternal salvation, but verse 9, to be the source of eternal salvation. For every priest, he this is Hebrews 10, stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, so that he might bridge the moral gap between God and man. And some of you, even in a small crowd like this, no doubt that there are some here this morning who need to walk across that bridge, need to get off of the bank of indifference. Some of you need to take your toes out of the religious water's edge and stop thinking that you just might be able to cross the river yourself with better efforts and try harders. You need to walk across the bridge that is Jesus Christ because He Hebrews 7.25 is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him. If you draw near to God through Him, the gap is closed. If you draw near to God any other way, you will be swept away. Jesus bridges the moral gap between God and man. Secondly, He bridges the communication gap between God and man. He bridges the communication gap between God and man. Not only have our sins rendered us unable to come to God on our own, they've also rendered us unable to speak to God on our own. We can shout as loud as we want, but the raging river in between God and us will always drown out our voice. We can call out to God at the top of our lungs, but we will find that our sins continually muffle and drown out our cries. This is why so many people get frustrated. They say things like, God just isn't hearing. He's not answering my prayers. I pray and it seems like my prayers just bounce off of the ceiling. <coughs> Sometimes a believer feels like that, but very often we feel that way because we're trying to bring our request to God on our own and we can't speak to God on our own. There's a communication <coughs> gap between man and God because there's a moral gap between man and God. Let me finish reading Isaiah 59 too to you. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Your sins have made it such that God does not hear. Now, again, enter Jesus. Through him God does hear. Listen to verse 7 of chapter 5. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Main point, God listens to Jesus. When Jesus brings a request to God, God listens because of his piety, because he was tempted in all things as we are yet without sins, because he was made perfect. Verse 9, God listens to his son. 
And so that day in dark Gethsemane, that's what verse 7 is describing, the Garden of Gethsemane, that day as Jesus cried out with loud, te- loud prayers and tears, cried out for his own life, God answered him. God did save him from death, though not in the way that we might have anticipated. God listens to his son. So then let me ask you this. If Jesus prayed with loud crying and tears for himself that day in Gethsemane, don't you think he also prays for his own? Don't you think he is also willing to intercede for his own, to bring our requests before God's throne? Of course he is. Hebrews 7.25 again says, He always lives to make intercession for us, to plead on our behalf. Jesus knows all of our troubles. Jesus hears all of our cries. And if we would just stop trying to twist God's arm with new resolves, if we would stop saying to God, if you'll just answer this prayer, I promise I'll do better next time. If we would start handing our prayers into the hand of the priest who is able to take them before God's throne and be heard, we would find that Jesus is more than happy to take our petitions and bring them to the Father in His nail-pierced hands and that God is more than happy to hear them and answer them. We would find, too, that God hears and answers our prayers as He did those of Jesus because of His piety. Your only hope for God to listen to you is not your piety, but His piety. So we must learn to present our request to God through Jesus. We must let Him be our heavenly letter carrier. We must bring our petitions before God's throne and allow them to be handed over in the nail-pierced hands of Jesus to the One who is able to save us from death. Now, quite practically, that's why we pray in Jesus' name. That's not just a religious tack-on at the end of our prayers. It's not just the equivalent of a 10-4 when we have said all that we know to say. The reason why we pray specifically in Jesus' name and the reason incidentally why, we, uh, why it is insufficient to pray, quote, in your name as m- many of you do, that's insufficient. And the reason is because Jesus is the go-between. We don't pray, for instance, in the name of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit, important as He is as the third person of the Trinity, is not the one who bridged the gap between us and God. The Holy Spirit is not the one who shed His blood for us. And the same can be said of the Father or of the Trinity in general. We don't pray in God's name generically. We pray in Jesus' name specifically because He is the one who died once for all to bring us to God. So when we pray in Jesus' name, what we're doing is not just tacking something on at the end of the prayer, but we're reminding ourselves and we're reminding our Heavenly Father that we're not bringing our requests on the strength of our own do-betters and our own try-harders and our own promises to reform. We're not bringing our prayers on the strength of our piety, but on the strength of His piety. Verse (coughs) 7, we're bringing our prayers in the name of Jesus who bridged the gap between man and God on the strength of Jesus who ever lives to make intercession for us, on the strength of Jesus who is heard by His Father because of His piety. Now, if we bring our request to God in our own strength, hoping that He will answer because we've done better this week, it's not very hope-giving, is it? How do we know how much better is enough? The reality is there's no 
limit to how much better is enough. There isn't a week that you could live that would earn you the right to be heard by God no matter how hard you tried. All of our righteous deeds even are filthy rags. There's not a day that you could live that would earn the right to be heard. But Jesus lived not for a day, not for a week, but for 33 years without sin. And if we would just bring our request to God through Him, we would be heard. If we know we will be heard, then we can also draw near with confidence. Verse 16, chapter 4. Draw near with confidence and expect to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The key to praying in faith and in confidence is to pray in the strength of Jesus. To know that God will answer on the basis of His piety and not our own. So if you're the person who perhaps struggles to pray because you don't think God wants to hear you, let me just say to you this morning, stop coming to God with your head hung, certain that He doesn't want to hear what you have to say, and start coming with confidence because you know that He does love to hear those who draw near to Him through His Son. Jesus has bridged the communication gap between us and God. If we would pray through Him, we would be heard. Thirdly, Jesus bridges the emotional gap between man and God. Jesus bridges the emotional gap between man and God. (coughs) If we've paid attention to our Bibles at all, we know that God is, Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy. We know, Romans 1.18, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We know that the eyes of the Lord are too pure to look upon evil, Habakkuk 1.13. We know those things. And if we've paid any attention to ourselves, then we'll be able to say with Paul, Romans 7, wretched man that I am. We'll be able to say with Isaiah in Isaiah 6, woe is me for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. I say again, if you've looked closely at what the Bible says about God and if you've dealt honestly with the sin that you know exists in your own heart, then you might have a sense of despair when you think about your relationship with God. You might find yourself waking up in the morning and saying, God must hate me. I did it again yesterday. God would never want to hear from these filthy lips. God must really have had it with me this time. That's the first, and in some ways that's the appropriate response to a person who has accurately seen God's holiness and accurately seen his own sin. I'm in big trouble. There's no way I can have friendship with God after the way I've behaved We might even think that way when we look at Jesus because we might say to ourselves, yes, yes, the earthly priest, chapter 5, verse 2, can deal gently with the ignorant since he himself was also beset with weakness. But Jesus didn't have any of those weaknesses. So maybe Jesus doesn't deal gently with the ignorant and misguided. Jesus obeyed God perfectly every time. Jesus never blew it like I've blown it. Jesus never fought with his family on the way to church. Jesus never gave in to pornography. Jesus never overate. Jesus never did anything wrong. So yes, the earthly priests, they can be patient with sinners like us because they were sinners themselves. But Jesus was made perfect. 
And he must be getting sick and tired of the same old nonsense out of me. Now, I know most of you know in your heads better than to think that way. But isn't that how we are sometimes tempted to feel? Aren't we sometimes struggling with our emotions towards God? Struggling to feel loved by Him? I struggle to feel loved by God sometimes. And when I struggle, I need to remind myself of Hebrews 4.15. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Now we normally focus on the phrase without sin and rightfully so because without that phrase Jesus would have been unable to die for the sins of others needing rather to pay the penalty for his own sins. The phrase without sin is important. It's important also because it's a reminder that victory is possible. Jesus didn't live 33 years of sinless life simply because he was God. Jesus wasn't Uh, walking through life as some kind of superhuman spiritual terminator who had no weaknesses. He was tempted just like you are, and he overcame. So the phrase without sin is very important. But for now, I want to focus your attention rather on the phrase tempted in all things as we are. Jesus knows what it is like to be tempted sexually. He knows what it's like to be tempted to lash out at a sibling or a spouse or a roommate. He knows what it's like to be tempted to skip out on God for a few days worth of quiet times. He knows what it is like to be human, tempted from every direction. And because he knows what it is like to be human, he is not sitting in heaven looking down on us saying to himself, what a bunch of scumbags. There they go again. I never did that. I can't believe he fell for it again. I've had it with her. The next time she comes to me asking for forgiveness, I'm going to really let her have it. It's not what Jesus says. It's not how he thinks. Psalm 103, Jesus knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Rather, we have a priest who, though he does not excuse our sin, understands what it's like to be a frail human being. And we also have a high priest who, thank God, didn't stop at sympathizing with our weaknesses, but who also fought in the Spirit to be sure that he lived his own life without sin, so that he who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5, might become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses and Jesus paid for our weaknesses. And so I ask you, do you have trouble feeling loved by God sometimes? When you think about who you are and who God is, are you tempted to despair? You need to look unto Jesus. Who was tempted in all things as we are, and who therefore can sympathize with our weaknesses. As the old hymn reminds us, we'll sing it in just a few moments. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him And pardon me. God does indeed love you. 
But you'll never believe it unless you look at the sinless Savior who sympathizes with your weaknesses and who died to forgive them. You must look unto him if your emotions are to be right toward God. So Jesus bridges, thirdly, the emotional gap between God and man. Finally, Jesus bridges the visual gap between God and man. He bridges the visual gap between God and man. In Leviticus 19.2, God told His people, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. (coughs) That's a tall order, isn't it? It seems like God is asking us to do the impossible. When we just look around at ourselves, or even when we look at other mature Christians that we know, we cannot see any way that it's possible for someone to obey that verse. Cannot see any way that it's possible if we look around on ourselves or on other mature Christians we know. But if we look at Jesus, the God-man, we see that it is possible to be holy as our Father in Heaven is holy. Jesus bridges the visual gap between man and God. He helps us to see things that we cannot see about God if we look anywhere but Jesus. First, when we look at Jesus, we see what the holiness of God looks like lived out in human flesh. Be holy because I am holy. How am I supposed to tell what that means if God is just a spirit? He's not dealing with marital relationship. He's not dealing with raising children. He's not dealing with roommates. He's not dealing with the lady in the next cubicle. How am I going to be holy like God is holy when I don't even know what that looks like? Well, I do know what it looks like because I can look at Jesus and I can see the holiness of God lived out in human flesh. And in looking to Jesus, I can see that it is possible for me to obey and to be holy as well. Remember, Jesus was not Rambo spiritually. He was not walking through life without ever being tempted, without having the devil's fiery darts aimed at him. He was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And so it's possible to be tempted and with the Holy Spirit's help to be without sin. Now let me just ask you, how have you been tempted in this past week? You think for a second of something specific. How have you been tempted? I want you to realize as you think on that temptation that Jesus' heart was pricked, maybe not with the exact same lies or promises as yours, but with the same overall kind of temptation. So, for instance, Jesus was never tempted to look at Internet pornography because there was no Internet 2,000 years ago. So He wasn't tempted specifically in that way, but He was tempted to look at a woman lustfully because he was tempted in every way that we are. Jesus was not tempted to shout at his wife because he didn't have a wife, but he was tempted to shout at his parents and his siblings and his disciples. He was tempted in every way that you and I are, yet without sin. And he was human. So here is a human being being tempted, but in the power of the Holy Spirit, not giving in to temptation. Being tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. And that reminds me that we may be tempted and be without sin as well. So Jesus helps us visualize in ourselves things that seem impossible. He is our forerunner. He has done things ahead of us 
so that we could see him and believe that we can follow him and imitate him. And this this chapter just speckled through mentioned several of those things, several ways that Jesus was our forerunner and showed us that we may actually follow him. For instance, is it really possible? It doesn't seem possible, but is it really possible that someday I will be caught up in the air to be ever with the Lord? Really? That just sounds a little bit bizarre and out there. Well, yes, it is possible because we know that Jesus, chapter 4, verse 14, at his ascension, passed through the heavens. And so if Jesus, our representative before God, has passed through the heavens to be forever with the Lord, why may not I? Similar encouragement can be found in chapter 5, verses 4 through 6. Sometimes it doesn't seem possible that we could lay down our own pride and our own desire to promote ourselves. If you're like me, um, you find yourselves in situations where you're tempted to, to pat yourself on the back. And you say to yourself in your head, I know I shouldn't pat myself on the back right now, but then you find yourself slipping in a little self-compliment nonetheless. You ever find that happening? I'll give you, for instance, <coughs> last week at our pastor's gathering, Larry Souders was describing the Romans conference that I did uh, for Highland Avenue Baptist a couple of weeks ago. And um, a couple of the guys were asking him, well, you know, what's the deal with that? And he said, well, it's a, it's a uh, study that's put out by the Southern Baptist Convention every winter. Uh, they publish a little book of curriculum, and so we, we take a Saturday and, and do that. And I found myself wanting to say, yeah, but I didn't use the curriculum. I did all the work myself. I'm sure you find yourself the same way. Knowing that you shouldn't blow your own horn, but finding yourself sometimes in sideways manners doing so. That's how we're wired, isn't it? Knowing that we shouldn't pat ourselves on the back, but feeling it almost impossible not to do so. But when we look at Jesus, who was fully man like we are, who was tempted in all the same ways as we are, we find, verse 5, that it is humanly possible not to glorify yourself. So also Christ did not glorify himself as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. It is possible to let God lift you up and not to lift yourself. And when we look at Jesus in verse 8, chapter 5, we discover that though he obeyed God perfectly always, he also grew in obedience. You see that? Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. Now, this doesn't mean that he was somehow imperfect and that he had to learn to do better. What it means is that he learned greater and greater degrees of submission and self-sacrifice as he walked his life and as the father put greater and greater demands upon his life. The demands that were upon his life when he was five weren't the same as they were when he was 33. So though he never sinned, he learned fuller and fuller submission as he grew older. He grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and with men. So even sinless Jesus learned obedience. And therefore, we who have a lot more learning to do really can learn obedience too. As our go-between, Jesus gives us a visual picture of what a holy God looks like, and he also gives us a visual picture of what a holy man looks like. 
so that He stands between us and God saying, yes, it is possible for you to be holy as your Father in Heaven is holy. So, (coughs) the summary is this. In Jesus, you have everything you need. On your behalf, He offers up sacrifice, shedding His blood to bridge the gulf of sin between yourself and God. He offers up prayer for you, constantly bringing your petitions to God in His nail-pierced hands. He offers you sympathy, having been tempted in all things as we are, and therefore sympathizing with our weaknesses. He offers us an example, having been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So the conclusion, the application, is really the first sentence of the passage. Verse 14, chapter 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast our confession, our faith in Jesus. In other words, let us not let anything distract us from Jesus. Let us not settle for being a part of a nice little church and attending some nice little Bible studies and getting our religious ticket punched. No, let us hold fast our confession of Jesus. He is our hope. Not religion. Let us not let him go. Also, let us not set our chief affection on religious things or religious people who are not Jesus. We can get so caught up in religious issues that we think are intriguing or important that we lose our focus on Jesus who is the only one who can save. Let us not give our lives to causes or goals that are not directly connected to Jesus. Whether it be at work or in our families, or wherever it may be, let us not give our lives to goals that are not tied specifically to Jesus. Let us not attempt to cross over the river to God in the boat of religion, but instead cling to Jesus and have Him bring us across. Let us not pray in our own strength, but remind ourselves that we can come to God boldly through Jesus. Let us not settle for a forbidding picture of God that makes us cower in His presence, but let us see God through the lens of the sympathy of His Son. And let us not fall prey to Satan's lie that Matthew 5.48, Be holy as I am holy, is impossible. But let us look to Jesus, who is tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us not let anything whether it be religion's substitutes or Satan's devices or the world's distractions or the flesh's self-satisfaction, let us not let anything cause us to lose our grip on Jesus, the Son of God, our great High Priest. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your Son whom we find on every page of this book. We thank You for Your Son who is all we need and all we have. We pray that we would not lose our focus on Him, that we would hold fast our confession of Him, that our lives would be defined by Him, that we would shine the radiance of Him to the world around us that's perishing. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.